Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Joining me today is Motley Fool analyst Buck Hartzell. Our special guest is Will Thompson. Will is the founder and managing partner of Massive Capital, an investment firm focused on global opportunities and listed real assets, principally mining, energy, and infrastructure. Will, welcome to Industry Focus. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so great to have you on, Will. Just, just first question off the bat, Massive Capital was founded in 2016. This is in the middle of a decade that it's been pretty difficult for energy as some of the subsectors uh, that you invest in. Why did you decide at uh, this particular focus for your fund? Uh, I guess I guess there's sort of two reasons. Um, so the first reason is just uh, in terms of my background, um, I've worked in project finance for commodity firms uh, on the insurance side of things, um, writing insurance policies for banks, providing project finance to mining companies, oil, natural gas, uh, commodity traders, credit insurance policies, things of that nature. So uh, my background is all in servicing the industry. Um, in addition to that, uh, in grad school, uh, I studied political risk and specifically focused on uh, areas where, um, or, or looking at how companies would integrate political risk into their uh, emerging market activities, most of which were sort of natural resources or extractive industries of some kind. So there's a, an industry background. And then on top of that, there was uh, just sort of a general trend that I observed that these, what I call liquid real asset companies were just wildly underserved. Uh, and there was a potential opportunity to sort of carve out a niche for myself in the equity space there. So, you, and you don't do insurers, but you have a lot of experience in insurers, and they're a little bit off cycle right now. Fairly cheap across that industry, maybe a new new area to go into. I guess anything's possible. My, my experience with insurance tells me that they're difficult to analyze. Okay, um, at the best of times, um, probably right. quite quite similar to the loan book of a bank. It's it's a yep. bit of a black box. What's going on in there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, you, you take a value approach uh, when it comes to your investing style. Uh, how do you think about approaching value investing? You know, obviously, if you go out there and just look for, for low price to book value companies, it's, you're going to have a bad time. Uh, so, so how do you think about value investing uh, from a strategy perspective? Well, at, at the moment, it's, it's quite difficult. <laughs> um, I think that you know, we, we don't do a lot of screening or anything like that. So we don't pick on, say, price to tangible book value or some sort of ratio like that when we're, we're looking for value. Uh, we tend to run DCFs on all the companies that we look at. And so in terms of value, I mean, we're just, again, I, I think the, the concept of value investing should best be summed up as we're buying a dollar for 50 cents. And, and so that's what we're looking for. And if that takes the form of a company that, uh, the operations as they currently are uh, suggest a value of the company that is a discount to uh, the current market price. That's great. If on the other hand, there is still some uh, expectation of growth that needs to occur in the future uh, to justify a, um, a valuation greater than the current price, 
you know, it, that's still value in my opinion, as long as, you know, you've sort of properly calibrated your expectations for uh, whether that growth is going to come through or not. Um, you know, I think the, if something, uh, you know, sort of outrageous needs to occur in order for evaluation to be justified, say something growing at 20 or 30 times, you know, revenue at 20 or 30 times a year, you know, now you're outside of the world of value investing. But, you know, if there's some sort of reasonable expectations of growth, um, that can also be valued. So, you know, I think value is a pretty big tent that, that gets, uh, often talked about in a very sort of narrow way. Well, we have a lot of retail investors in the Motley Fool platform who are listening today. Um, and some of them are newer investors, right? They're kind of new to this. Is there any tip, like uh, one or two things that you would ask them to kind of avoid as value investors or stay away from? Um, maybe a suggestion uh, that you've maybe learned the hard way or, or not? Yeah, well, I guess um, for our areas of focus, the place to start would be uh, junior mining. Um, okay. You know, junior miners are, uh, we run into a lot of retail in some of the stocks we own. My advice would probably be to stay away from junior miners. Okay. Um, it seems like a lot of people like to take them as sort of a lottery pick and put them in their portfolio. And <laughs> I guess that's fine if you want to do that and you understand sort of what it is that it is a lottery pick. Um, but, you know, mining tends to be a, a pretty technical. Um, area. And so my experience suggests that um, you should bring some real study and expertise to the question rather than just sort of throwing money at some sort of good drill results. Uh, right. It seems like a lot of people get in trouble with that. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good suggestion for folks. So there's been a lot of debt taken on amongst even the best of companies from the S&P 500. I mean, um, you know, I've read something, there was an article the other day that said companies were paying out 13% more than they earned the year before if you combine buybacks with dividends. That money's got to come from somewhere. It's come from very cheap debt. Um, and, uh, and buybacks have been almost double dividends in the S&P 500, so almost $730 billion from buybacks in 2019. But my question for you is you deal with cyclical companies with typically some of them have high fixed costs and, and operating leverage. How much does the examination of debt um, and the balance sheet play into the analysis that you guys do on the businesses you look at? Yeah, so for us, everything starts with the balance sheet. Um, the balance sheet is, you know, a, a very much in our opinion, a snapshot of what the company is. Uh, it represents the resources the company has to work with to produce cash flows. Um, and, you know, we care principally about cash flows. Uh, so, you know, I, I think uh, any analysis that starts any place other than the balance sheet, especially in these days, um, is, is a risky proposition. The more debt, you know, a company takes on for whatever reason they take it on, uh, in sort of uh, increases their fragility um, in the long term. And so, you know, to the degree that you take on debt, for example, to buy back shares, which is something that does not deliver sort of a positive growth in cash flows. It, it delivers a financial engineering growth, perhaps in cash flows. Um, you know, that, that's uh, a risky proposition because that debt does need to be paid back at some point. And if you've invested it in something that's not going to increase your earning power, then uh, at least in, in our book, uh, that seems like a, a significant misstep. So um, I think that 
the share buybacks that have occurred over the last, we'll call it decade, you know, in theory, share buybacks are a nice way to return capital, but um, it seems like, um, especially on Wall Street, everyone takes everything to a, you know, the sort of a point of absurdity. Um, yeah. You know, once it becomes a good idea, it's a good idea that everyone's got to do it all the time. Right. Uh, I run into very few companies these days who don't seem to have a, you know, sort of share buyback mandate. Um, yeah. Why everyone has a share buyback mandate, I don't know. It, it, it's a good idea sometimes, not all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the importance of the balance sheet to your approach, and I pulled a quote from your fourth quarter 2019 investor letter where you say, we view the firm as not just having the characteristics of a going concern, but also as an institutional structure with resource conversion capability, with the resource being the balance sheet. Can you distinguish for us the approach to valuing a company from a going on a going concern basis, like that capital asset pricing model you might have mentioned earlier, versus this resource conversion basis uh, that you mentioned in that letter. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a, our our version of an idea that uh, the famous investor uh, Marty Whitman had, and basically, you know, the a business as a going concern is is a business producing cash flows and income, doing whatever it does. Coca-Cola, it's producing Coca-Cola. Our mining firms, it's selling copper. Um, so they are you know, operations that produce cash flow. But they also have these assets on the balance sheet that can be um, flipped to someone else. They can be sold to generate returns. They can uh, use assets on the balance sheet to buy other assets. Uh, they can leverage the balance sheet up a little bit. It's not, you know, I did say, of course, you have to be concerned with debt, but it's not as if you can't use debt whatsoever. Um, so the, the, the business as an operation is, is sort of turning the balance sheet over on a continuous basis. The business as a resource, if you will, is the balance sheet and the snapshot and what you can do with those resources at any given moment uh, outside of sort of cycling through them in the operations. And how do you measure this as an investor? So I know as an investor, I go look at the statement of cash flows and I can get an idea of what cash flows are going to be, maybe project those into the future. What metrics do you look at to identify these opportunities on a resource conversion type investment? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say there are metrics to look at. And part of the reason for that is because it's about what kind of creative ideas management has about what they can do with the business. And so resource conversion is much more about the management team and knowing, uh, you know, they have an idea about combining themselves with, with another business, or they have an idea about how they can flip some asset they've got in some other country and reinvest that money into growing a mine in the United States or something. Um, so it's much more about getting a sense for management's strategy and focus and outlook for their business than it is per se about actual um, numbers on the balance sheet. That being said, uh, you know, one does of course want to look at the tangible book value for a lot of the businesses we look at because that's the, the substance which the management team has to work with. Um, and then of course, for a lot of businesses these days, there's also intangibles and those will have uh, you know, various ways you can attempt to evaluate the, the value of, um, but that's the material the management team has to work with. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
I would say you start with the management team though, and, and whether they have some sort of creative ideas about how to use those assets. That's great. And I follow up on that a little bit. We love management. We love investing in owner operator run businesses at the full. We have a lot of those within our recommendation list. Um, and often you mentioned balance sheet. We say, you know, you've heard a lot that when you buy a company, you get the balance sheet and the CEO. I mean, that's essentially what you get. Um, how important is management? And in your particular sectors, um, what are some standouts or things that you look at um, uh, to evaluate them? Yeah, so um, I think that management uh, is, is critical in every business. I would say in real asset businesses, in some way, it's almost more critical than other industries uh, just because they are so, um, the, the operations uh, leave very little room for for error or misjudgment. Um, and so from an operating, from a day-to-day -day perspective, the management team needs to be very good. Um, but when they go to uh, allocate capital, uh, they also need to be extremely good because what we've seen is, is a history of management teams, especially in natural resources businesses, who, you know, they feel quite wealthy when the commodities are... Uh, when commodities are, are trading at all-time highs and whatnot, and they deploy capital uh, unintelligently. So I think, you know, with a lot of resource companies, it is important to look at the history of write-offs um, and uh, impairments. That can tell you a lot about, you know, the way that company has as an institution thought about how it allocates capital going forward. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the current management team thinks the same way, um, but you know, institutional memory changes pretty slowly. Um, so I, I would, you know, the, the capital allocation acumen of the management team is one of the first things uh, we try to sort of suss out. And, you know, there's return on invested capital is an important measure of that. Uh, return on capital employed would also be an important measure. Um, return on assets, uh, you know, those types of statistics um, would be quite helpful uh, in addition to a more qualitative assessment of the management team. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The history of the management team also, especially with mining companies and especially with junior miners, which I, I did suggest people stay away from, but we, but we don't stay away from them because we spend all the time on mining firms. <laughs> um, you get management teams that cycle through a lot of different junior miners. Um, and not, not necessarily because they, they failed at a previous miner, but, but just because through the life cycle of a mine, there are different types of management teams that are required to operate the mine. Um, and so, you know, looking at that history is quite valuable. We find that searching for management teams on LinkedIn and really getting a sense for their, their full work history um, is quite useful and informative. One of the factors when you, when you talk about looking at, at a history of a company, you mentioned, you mentioned the word cycle management, cycling through management teams. I want to ask a, a different cyclical question. So all the sectors that, that Massive invests in are, are heavily affected by the market cycle. And as a result, understanding the macroeconomic cycle has got to be important uh, to investing success in those areas. When, when you write about your investing approach, you mentioned that your analysis of the macroeconomy is grounded in Austrian economics. What does that mean for you in practice as an investor? It's going to start with a uh... And this is, is definitely not in vogue at the moment, um, but it's going to start with a, a concern uh, for the currency um, that a, a company operates in. And that, that's a very obviously high level macro 
through a commentary, but it's also going to um, have a concern for what appears to be the capital cycle and the, the levels of investment in a particular industry. Um, and the idea that there very much is a business cycle uh, that runs on, in some regards, the capital that is flowing into an industry. So uh, to the degree that you know, there is a lot of capital flowing into, say, gold mining, let's say, just for example, uh, it might be it may be suggestive of you know a future supply grid if a lot of mines come online. Um, and so, to the degree that you can get a sense for the way capital is flowing into and out of a business um, or industry, uh, you can get a sense for where you are in a potential business cycle. Um, a lot of it comes back to sort of business cycle analysis, which uh, has some roots in Austrian economics. Uh, as I said, we're also intensely concerned with inflation and the currency uh, and the, the debts um, associated with the countries that these businesses operate in or are headquartered in um, at, at the macro level. Yeah. And, and speaking of inflation, I mean, that's a huge thing. We're all trying to invest so that we earn a return above inflation and increase our purchasing power. Had a pretty big stimulus program here recently. I think you know over four trillion dollars. Um, how does that factor into you know what you think about the prospects? I mean, we've been in a very low interest rate, low inflation environment for a long time, um, and I think it's there's not a whole lot written about potential inflation, and I don't think it's on a lot of people's. They just kind of take it for granted that inflation is going to be one or two percent. But we have this huge stimulus. Um, any thoughts on the impacts of those or maybe give us Hayek's? What would he think about that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the Austrians would, would, be, <laughs> would be crawling up the walls, um, right. everyone calling for inflation. I, I think we, we try to be... So one of the things that, that we try to make sure we're sort of always thinking about is the fact that while the macroeconomics or business cycle... Uh, that's going on behind the companies we invest in um, is very important. And we have, you know, definitely have sort of a reference narrative, what we think is going to occur. We try to be sort of cognizant of all times of the fact that it's a very low probability that what we think is going to occur is actually going to occur. So we, we try to assemble a portfolio that sort of thrives under, you know, multiple diverse scenarios. Um, in regards to inflation, I think that in 2008, everyone got really concerned about inflation with QE. I, I mean, I guess it's a little after 2008, but 2009, 2010, um, you know, everyone was crawling up the walls, uh, concerned with inflation, talking about, you know, Weimar Republic style, you know, hyperinflation. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of investors just sort of uh, missed some opportunities. Now, we try to not go that extreme on the inflation issue. Um, we do think there is inflation coming. We do think that it's quite likely we get a period of deflation first, followed by a period of inflation. Um, we also tend to think that uh, inflation comes in a couple of different flavors and different forms, and uh, especially with commodity producers can 
sort of crop up and you can get sort of weird industry inflation as a result of supply constraints. Um, so, you know, sort of broader CPI inflation, I, I don't really have much to say on it. I, I, I don't find CPI to be a terribly, it measures some kind of inflation. It's just not a type of inflation I'm terribly concerned with. Right. Um, so I, I do think we'll get more inflation down the road. Um, I suspect we'll have a period of deflation first, though, um, just as a result of this weird mix of, of government cash, low interest rates, high debts. Um, it, it's going to be a confused period for, for a little while. It is an interesting period because you saw at one point we had 20 million people unemployed, but yet the highest savings rate in the I mean, huge spike in savings rate. It's just it's tough to look back for those that like to study history and go, yeah. What's a what's a good comparable? Yeah, we're, we're kind that, of an unprecedented area here of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and that and that savings rate just you know the the velocity of money um, this year has, I mean, it's just fallen through the floor, which of course is going to be very difficult. It's going to be difficult to create inflation, if you will, in such an environment. Um, to the degree that that savings rate uh, is maintained. Um, you know, that's the period of deflation we're talking about uh, prior to an inflationary period. Yeah. Will, you mentioned capital flows and what that can do to supply and demand dynamics in some of the industries in which you invest. And that, that's an area I wanted to get into a little bit. It appears like we might be at, a, at an inflection point uh, when it comes to our energy infrastructure. There's clearly a mandate from governments to reduce emissions, which a lot of people obviously point out that's going to affect oil and gas companies, but it also is going to affect the mining companies that you own, shipping companies that are subject to these types of emission regulations. How are you thinking about this transition to clean energy as you build your portfolio? Well, I think we have a bit of a, I don't know, at the moment, I, I think it's an out of, uh, wouldn't say out of favor. It's just a, a perspective that's not not very common. Um, and our perspective is that a lot of the physical real assets that are carbon producing, uh, the businesses associated with those assets um, represent uh, critical industries that we cannot continue our sort of economies without. Um, and so physical assets have a critical role to play in actually facilitating a transition to a low carbon economy. Now, oil and natural gas is a bit of a funny one. Um, there absolutely is going to be a fall in demand over some sort of long period of time, assuming you know electric cars take off and whatnot. Um, but there are other industries that are carbon intensive that we just can't uh, afford to live without nor can we create a low carbon economy with that. And so the prime example is mining. Mining is a carbon intensive uh, sort of industry. Uh, mines, you know, in the DRC or, you know, say Mongolia, copper mines, things of that nature. Um, you know, the, these, these operations run on diesel power generators and, and things of that nature. Uh, yet, you know, you, you can't build a solar panel without, aluminum and copper and silicon and various other natural resources. You can't build a wind turbine without steel, concrete, and again, copper. Uh, we can't power these electric cars without nickel, lithium, uh, copper, again. 
um, and a whole host of other metals. So the, the idea uh, that we are approaching a transition we think is, a, uh, is true um, and that it represents a significant opportunity uh, for those who are willing to do the work to understand which of these sort of real asset businesses that are carbon producers have management teams and business models that are trying to set themselves up to transition rather than simply sort of continuing to do business as usual. And, and you've mentioned, I think, in some of your letters, I think lithium is one that you, you kind of wrote about, like once people get on board, I'm talking about investors now, you know, some of these stocks can go crazy because they anticipate all this demand. And then, and then you see kind of a fallout down at the end. Are you guys more on the early side, kind of get in early before the trend and, and it becomes popular? Or are you kind of like after the bubble burst, we'll get in at the other end when everybody's kind of um, given up on the, 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 big, the big thing? I think it probably just sort of depends on what we see. Uh, so lithium, we uh, avoided the, the first sort of bubble, if you will. Um, it, I guess if you were early enough, um, you know, it, it was probably a great ride. Um, we didn't, we didn't see a setup or a series of investments that made sense early enough. You know, the, the major producers had great assets, but they weren't necessarily, you know, pure lithium plays. And then there were so many juniors that, you know, a lot, and a lot of them just had no, you know, the, one thing that happens with commodities, especially in mining, is you, you'll just get people piling in. Ge teams of geologists will come together and say, we got we to gotta start finding lithium. And all of a sudden, you've got all these lithium companies, but nobody's ever mined lithium before on the team. Um, yeah. So I would say that it, it just sort of depends on what we see. I'd say most of the time, uh, we probably are on the other side of the initial bubble. Um, there's a lot of de-risking that occurs during that initial bubble, especially for mining firms. And so our preference would be to get in on the other side. With mining firms, again, in particular, we tend to uh, just in general invest more frequently during, say, a construction period for a mine than we do when it is a, say, just drill holes and a geological deposit. Um, so, so we like to we like to see a route to a sustainable business model before yeah. we invest. And so frequently that's, that's not in the first bubble. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that these flows of capital into some of these spaces and that, that how, how that feeds into your analysis. You just mentioned how a lot of cash you know, flooded into lithium um, a couple of years ago and created a little bit of a, of a bubble there. As you look out into the market today, where do you see an area where capital is being underallocated, where, where you think there's an opportunity? And on the other side, where, where do you think things are overinflated? I guess we can, we can sort of go through, I want to look at our portfolio here and sort of go through things a little bit. I would say that base metals in general um, are being underallocated to. Can you specify what base metals are for folks who aren't yeah, familiar yeah, or our listeners? So, so things like, well, actually, I can't really speak to iron ore. I, I don't know iron ore very well. Um, so I'll say copper. Copper is being underinvested in. Um, copper is very a good, solid copper deposits are very hard to find. Um, there haven't been very many discoveries of world-class copper assets in the last 20 years. 
Uh, you've sort of got two big ones in Turquoise Hill, which owns an o the OT mine in Mongolia and has been a bit of a troubled asset. Uh, and then you have Ivanhoe, which has uh, got copper assets in the DRC. Um, two world-class deposits, but, but other than that, there haven't been a lot of world-class deposits found. Uh, the volume of copper we're going to need going forward is quite significant. Copper is one of these assets or one of these metals that is sort of technology agnostic, meaning if we go hardcore solar panels and no wind power, we still need copper. If we go hardcore wind and no solar panels, we still need copper. Uh, if we, I don't know, come up with some other way to charge batteries, doesn't matter, we still need copper. So uh, copper is a good one. Um, in the long run, aluminum. Uh, is quite interesting. The level of flows and investment in aluminum um, probably, aluminum is probably more about the businesses themselves getting their acts together than it is about under or over investment. Uh, one metal that is receiving no flows, no investment whatsoever really is nickel. Uh, nickel requires we're going to require, uh, we're going to need a lot of nickel going forward. And at the moment, um, there just aren't a lot of nickel deposits and people haven't found them. Nickel tends to, uh, the deposits tend to be associated with other metals. And it's just, uh, it's, it's been a tough metal to, to find things in. Um, if you look sort of more uh, towards, you know, outside of the raw commodities, but still within the sort of energy transition space, if you will, there is no question in my mind uh, that there is a bubble in quote unquote sort of alternative fuel businesses. So people like Plug Power or Bloom Energy, um, I, you know, the management teams are well-meaning, don't get me wrong, you know, but uh, some of these businesses just don't have a business model that is sustainable and haven't proved themselves in any way whatsoever, but the flows into them are huge. Um, so uh, solar in the United States in general, in our opinion, is vastly overpriced. Wind power is underappreciated. So it sounds like the folks who are making that power, that the, the final uh, end commodity that's coming out that you're going to use uh, you know, in your power grid is where you're seeing a massive amount of overinvestment, but on the actual commodities that are necessary to constructing those assets, there's there's incredible underinvestment. Do you think that's because just there aren't enough copper deposits? Like there just aren't mines that are easily accessible left in the world or because we're just not adequately investing cash in these subsectors for whatever reason? I would be very hesitant. I, so the idea that there just aren't mines, I find, it's, that's one of those things where it's certainly a possibility, but that's sort of like calling peak oil or something. I, I'm, I'm not ready to do that. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think we have some sort of inventory that we're aware of of all the copper deposits and, you know, finding a copper deposit, finding frankly any deposit is a mineable deposit is incredibly difficult and requires a ton of money and time. And so my gut reaction to that is, is sort of it's a capital question uh, and there's just not a lot of capital flowing into junior mining the the structure of the mining industry and how mines are financed is a i wouldn't call it broken um but it, it's it's a the setup is is a very challenging way to finance a critical industry 
you know, you've got teams of geologists who go to the Toronto Stock Exchange and float, uh, for all intents and purposes, they float some geological idea that they've got. Um, and who's going to invest in that? Well, you know, a couple of their friends, some geologists, you know, and then they've, they've got to raise, you know, sort of friends and family capital for all intents and purposes, that level of capital in a public market. Um, and then they go and drill some holes and hopefully raise some more capital by issuing more shares. Uh, it's a bit of a broken model, um, or at the very least, it's not the most efficient model for achieving the end result. Um, so I, I'd say that the commodities are definitely being underinvested in. Uh, I'd say the middle of a lot of the supply chains for things like batteries or uh, solar and wind power are overinvested in, or at the very least, a lot of the shares are, are trading at sort of fairly rich premiums. Um, and the reason, I don't, I don't know what the reason for that is. That, that investment in the middle uh, seems quite robust. And that's especially true for something like batteries. Like the, the number of gigafactories being built um, far outstrips the capacity of the mining industry to produce the inputs. Um, where these, these gigafactories that are sprouting up on a weekly basis in places like China are going to source their material from is, is beyond me. One area you talk about demand, investment's going to have to flow into an area that, that I think about, and you've written about some, uh, is nuclear. Not a lot of folks realize when you look at production of energy in the United States, nuclear is the largest source of carbon-free energy production in the U.S., accounting for more than all renewable energy combined. What do you see the role of nuclear playing in the transition of our energy grid, if at all? I mean, it's, it could be a tailwind if we, if we invest more in nuclear, or it could be a headwind if, those, if that nuclear power production comes off the grid. Yeah, so we definitely hope it's a, it's a, a tailwind. We hope there's more investment. Um, it, to, to the degree that uh, policymakers uh, incentivize the build out of nuclear, um, the transition will be easier. Uh, and frankly, it'll be less, uh, it will require less commodity uh, production, if you will, than, than if they don't. Um, at the moment, we don't necessarily have a very optimistic uh, outlook for growth in nuclear. Um, you know, the, the European Union is written some policy that, I mean, it doesn't, everyone recognizes the importance of nuclear, I guess I'd say, but nobody as of yet, in our opinion, is willing to go out sort of on a limb and say, we need to do this, we need to build more nuclear power plants, uh, and we are going to come up with a way of financing it, and, and you know, we're going to move forward with it. The exception, of course, would be someone like China and India, both of whom uh, have made it a policy to build out their uh, nuclear power fleets. Um, why the Western world has decided to basically cede uh, their, what was a, a, a leading position in that industry is, is beyond me. Um, so. so among a certain subset of, of value investors, you mentioned nuclear, uranium has been this, this narrative of, of there, there's a big opportunity here. Do you see that as an opportunity today? And if so, can you walk us through the, the thesis there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we do, so despite the fact that we don't expect a significant build out of 
of new uh, of the sort of Western world's nuclear fleet. Uh, there will be growth uh, in the fleet um, just as a result of emerging market uh, development. And uranium is one of those uh, metals or commodities that you know has been sort of viciously hit by a capital cycle. Um, there are there has been very little, if any, investment in actual expansion of sort of the, the world's uranium mining uh, operations. And so uh, over the last 10 years, what you've seen is secondary supply, which has been sort of critical to keeping uh, nuclear utilities fueled with uranium, has dwindled. That secondary supply uh, came from places like, uh, from places like Russia, or Kazakhstan, um, and is basically uranium that was uh, not, that no utility had sort of uh, asked for or, or signed a, con a long-term contract for. Um, and so that secondary supply uh, was significant enough over the last 10 years uh, that there was really no incentive for anyone to invest in building out primary supply. We have come to a point now where inventory levels at utilities uh, and just sort of the existence of that secondary supply has dwindled to the point that utilities are all aware of the fact that they need to pay a higher price on uranium to incentivize mining because quite soon, sometime in say the next five years, there quite literally will not be enough uranium to meet the demand of the existing fleet. And it's, it's pretty easy to sort of draw this out on a piece of paper. Um, as is, the uranium mar market is not a market that clears naturally. Meaning if you add up all the supply from all of the world's uranium mines on a yearly basis, it does not currently meet our annual demand. So there's that gap. That gap was filled by the secondary supply. That secondary supply has dwindled and now that gap is basically increasing and Interestingly enough, with COVID, uh, we had even more mines shut down uh, to the point that, you know, I, I'd have to double check, but I, I don't necessarily know if anyone of substance besides for Kazatomprom, which is the Kazakhstani uh, state uranium miner, is actually mining uranium. So Kamika, which is the big name that most Western sort of investors know, they're not operating any mines. They, they own mines, but they're all in care and maintenance. Um, they're all shut down. Uh, so the gap uh, just continues to grow. Um, and as that gap grows, uh, the incentive price to, to get people to either bring mines back online or to invest uh, increases. So this is an opportunity folks have been pointing out for, for a number of years. Why do you think it's it's taken so long for the thesis to, to come to fruition in the market? Well, so I, I guess there, there's two things. So one is a lack of appreciation for uh, how significant the secondary supply was, say, 10 years ago. Um, there is also a lack of appreciation of uh, the emergence of a, uh, not quite a spot market, but a trading market for uranium. Um, and so utilities, which have historically sort of gone out and contracted for uranium on a sort of five-year contracted basis, say, we want uranium every year for the next five years, we'll sign a contract now and pay you $50 a pound. Um, because there was this growth in secondary supply and a trading market, 
they've been able to go into that market and rather than say approach a mine who says, well, if you pay us $50 a pound, we'll give you, you know, whatever, 2 million pounds of, of, of uranium a year, every year for the next uh, six years, um, utilities have been able to go into the trading market and find someone who maybe can't provide them with uranium for the next six years, but can provide them with uranium for the next two. And they can do it at $30 a pound. And so uh, utilities have made the decision to continue to go into that trading market. Um, and as a result, uh, there hasn't been that um, long-term contracting demand. And that's the demand that sets the sort of price that incentivizes miners to develop mines. You mentioned Kazatomprom. Uh, that's a company that you've been invested in in the past. You mentioned earlier a background in political risk. This is a company that's 80% owned by the Kazakhstani Private Wealth Fund. How do you evaluate the political risk in this type of investment? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the political risk is, uh, it's very much just sort of like management teams, it's about incentives. Um, and the incentives of the Kazakhstani government, uh, based on the way the sovereign wealth fund is set up, based on where they derive their wealth, uh, their wealth to fund the sovereign wealth fund from, um, they are interested in the dividend from Kazatomprom. Um, and uh, to the degree that the dividend is financed out of free cash flow, uh, which is what we're interested in the company growing, it's free cash flow, uh, our interests are aligned. And so we view the political risk as, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it insignificant by any means, um, it's certainly higher than it is, say, in the United States. Um, but, well, uh, that's debatable, actually. But certainly higher than it is in some places. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's largely a question of incentives. Um, and the incentives can only really be evaluated, though, by going out there and talking with uh, government officials and, and sort of getting a sense for who the people you're getting in bed with are. Um, political risk. You know, the thing about political risk that's kind of interesting is when you bring it up and people talk about it, they think about country risk. They think about things like interest rates and currencies and, and, and debt and, uh, you know, uh, security issues and things of that nature. But political risk is really a, a, a people risk, um, much more than it is a sort of aggregate statistics risk. So you get one of these country research or country risk reports from uh, IHS or, or um, Moody's or something like that, they're going to talk a lot about the country from the perspective of some sort of economic model, basically, and evaluating the political risk within the, the confines of sort of general statements about the country. But the reality is that political risk for businesses operating in countries is mostly about the people and, you know, sort of what they're what the power structure of the countries is and what role those people play in that uh, country's government and things of that nature. Speaking of, speaking of politics, we have an election coming up here in the United States. Um, we, we have um, uh, elected officials now, particularly in the White House, have been very pro some industries particularly coal and some of those, and even the ones that they've been pro, I mean, coal, we could kind of argue that 
it, it hasn't done well and the economics aren't that great. I'm talking about thermal coal, not met coal mm-hmm. here. Um, but what are your thoughts on the upcoming election and, and, and how do you think that um, could impact the investments that you have? You know, I, I uh, first of all, I have no sort of political predictions. So, yeah. so I'm not, not going to venture there. I would say that um, from our perspective, we would really like to see one of the things we see in Europe that we think is particularly interesting is that despite the fact that there is some fairly contentious politics, the EU and the EU's various you know, member states are mostly getting on the same page when it comes to regulations regarding uh, climate change. And as a result, there is significantly more clarity uh, in the EU about what some of these industries, sort of like the utility industry or energy industry more broadly, what the sort of regulatory environment going forward that they're going to be operating in is going to look like. The United States, there is no clarity whatsoever. And so, for instance, the, the utility sector is a really interesting sector, but I personally wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole uh, in from the perspective of a long-term investor, just because you have no idea what it's going to look like in the next two years, five years, 10 years, haven't got a clue. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we can't all get on the same page about what sort of regulations we need, or even if we need regulations. Um, the diversity of opinions uh, regarding environmental regulations in the United States is, is, is tremendous. Um, now, there are strengths and weaknesses to that. You want a diversity of opinions because you want a, a rigorous debate. We don't really see that rigorous debate occurring in the United States. Um, and to the degree that this election can perhaps bring uh, some more moderate individuals uh, into power on either the, the right or the left, it doesn't really matter. Um, we view that as a positive. To the degree that Trump and the Republicans uh, sort of, let's say Trump maintains his position as the president and the Senate is uh, still in the hands of the Republicans and the House you know, does whatever the House does. Um, we pro- that, that probably is, is not going to impact uh, our investments one way or the other greatly. And we also have a fair amount of international exposure anyway. So um, to the degree that uh, the Democrats are able to take the presidency, um, and maybe even take the Senate. I, I think you know there's a possibility that uh, at least we've heard that you know that's sort of a possibility that's out there, um, and that enables them to bring a singular sort of line of thought to the regulatory uh, realm when it comes to climate change-related policies. Uh, that'll probably be a positive for some of our investments. Uh, although it will be a negative for a couple of the oil investments we've got. But as I said earlier, you know, we do try to invest in companies that can thrive in multiple environments. And for that reason, we're not invested, for example, in any fracking firms. Um, So, you know, I I think either way, we're in reasonable shape, although there will be more tailwind, uh, perhaps to a a Biden presidency, uh, assuming 
there is some sort of additional power uh, captured in, in the House and the Senate. Yeah. I, I love the idea, like you said, it mentioned like there's, there's no policy. So to have some idea of long-term policy and regulations is super important because, you know, we were talking about uranium and nuclear power and stuff like that. I mean, you know how long it takes to build a nuclear plant? I mean, and if, if all of a sudden the rules change halfway through or whatever, I mean, that's why the cost of these things escalate and they end up costing three or four times what they were originally projected to be. Um, just to have that standard and the regulations that's what, in, what invites capital, right? Because an investor's going like, I'm not going to put my money down on this new thing that I don't know how long it's going to take or how much it's going to cost. And then by the time it gets done, it might not even be allowed to use it. Like, I mean, that, that is a huge risk for people that are deploying their capital. Yeah, no, I, the, the regulatory risk is huge. Um, and, and I think there's, there's even more to it than that because to the degree that the regulatory risk results in investors being uncomfortable uh, with an investment in a particular company, that means the management team is going to continuously shorten up their sort of their perspective. And it's going to be about the next quarter. And it's going to be, you know, after the next quarter, it's going to be about the next quarter. And it's not going to be about, you know, say you're a concrete company, you have a large carbon footprint, you need to make significant investments into changing the way you operate. But to the degree that you have skittish investors who are ready to bolt for the door yeah. and no regulatory clarity, and both those things are connected, uh, you're not going to make those investments. Yeah. Um, and so the ability for real asset businesses in particular uh, to invest in themselves and to, to grow uh, the value of their business in the absence of regulatory clarity, uh, it's quite challenging. All right. I, I, one one closing question for you, for you, Will. You, you mentioned earlier you want to pre, don't want to predict the future, and more things can happen uh, than do happen. Uh, but if you had to guess, you know, looking out ten years from now, that we're in this transition of our energy infrastructure, how do you think our energy infrastructure looks different ten years of now, from now than it does today? Nick, maybe provide some context for those people who maybe don't know. What are we talking about? We're talking about coal, how much from coal now and, and natural gas, and then we have the alternatives. And Sure, happy to. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, electricity generation in the United States in 2019 broke down roughly as follows. 38% natural gas, 23% coal, 20% nuclear, and 18% renewables. And within renewables, that includes solar, wind, hydropower, and biomass energy. I mean, I, I suspect that coal is going to continue to wither away, you know, at either at, at the pace it's going or an accelerated pace. I mean, I get, I guess it could always slow down too, but either way, um, the economics of coal just it, as a business, it just doesn't really work very well. Um, and that's not a result of uh, regular, you know, everybody wants to blame sort of Obama for that or something like that. But the fact of the matter is that uh, natural gas is cheaper and renewables are cheaper, even, even absent uh, sort of government regulation. Um, I suspect that, you know, in the United States over the next 10 or 15 years, uh, we will just sort of continue to see that steady growth in both renewables, uh, but probably also to a degree natural gas. Um, now, whether the natural gas gets used more for industrial purposes, um, or whether it gets used for, you know, sort of electricity purposes uh, is unclear. Um, 
but you know part of the challenge with electricity uh, is that it's it's a, a source of power that can only be used in, in certain applications. And so from that regards, you know solar panels and wind turbines are basically useless to a steel plant. Um, but natural gas is most certainly not. Uh, now that's not necessarily an energy use of natural gas uh, or an electricity use, but but it is a it's a an energy use. Um, so I, I expect renewables to grow. I expect offshore wind is going to start to play an increasingly important role um, as it is already starting to do in Europe, and is it's it's getting there in the United States, but it's pretty slow. Offshore wind is a, a, a tremendous resource that we are just sort of letting blow by us, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I love the point. Will, Will, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us today. If folks want to learn more about Massive Capital or want to keep up with what y'all are doing, where can they go do that? Yeah, so if you, uh, you can just go to our website. It's uh, massivecap.com, M-A-S-S-I-F-C-A-P.com. Uh, we publish some, some research reports, probably one or so a quarter. We publish some white papers and we publish a, a sort of weekly commentary on sort of investing in real assets and, and an energy transition. Um, so uh, please feel free to sign up. Uh, you and your 10,000 or so other people uh, can enjoy our thoughts on a weekly basis. <laughs> right. We can benefit from all your work. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Thanks very much, Will. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for making a sound so nice. For Buck Harsel and Will Thompson, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool On. Thank you.